0: And to top it off, it's packed in a vegan leather bag, making it a must-have for all your summer adventures. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat yourself to glowing, healthy skin this summer with clean, vegan skincare and body care from Osea. Right now, you can get the best seller's body care set valued at $78 for 33% off. Use code SUMMER to save an additional 10%. That's an additional 10% off at oceamalibu.com code SUMMER.
1: This episode was made possible by great patrons like Phil Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you want to support the show on Patreon, go over to Demystified by Ashley Styles and support us there from as little as £1 a month. Or even just follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. It really does help. Also, there are some big updates coming to Demystified, so stay tuned, I'm going to release a separate episode soon talking about new changes to the structure of the show and the way it is going forward. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. 1595. The Orinoco River. What is today Venezuela? Small crafts roam near silently upriver, aiming to plunge deep into the unexplored jungle. For the men in the crafts, Europeans with a native entourage, this might as well be another world for all they've seen. England has historically been referred to as the green and pleasant land, but the verdant hues stretching from the murky seaweeds and brilliant teals of the river up through the emerald canopy to the sky put that description to shame. At the head of this expedition is one of the most famous men in England, perhaps even the European world. An explorer of such renown that his name would adorn cities and mountains, as well as inadvertently creating the modern tobacco industry. I am, of course, talking about Walter Raleigh. Raleigh is no stranger to the idea of the New World. Having built his fortune by fighting Irish rebels and stealing their property, he was granted a royal charter to explore the area known as Virginia. But he never actually did that. That was his underling's job. No, Sir Walter never visited North America, but he did visit South America. Because as lucrative as tobacco would one day be, he wasn't interested in all that he was interested in something a little more immediate, gold. When the Spanish arrived in the New World looking for gold, they found such quantities of gold and silver that their eyes exceeded their stomachs. By enslaving the native populaces from Mexico down to Peru, they reaped what some would call laser-guided karma by importing so much silver they crashed their own economy through inflation. But whilst the Spanish were having their own troubles, every European and their dog heard about the wealth that awaited them in the New World. This wasn't so for most, as the settlers of Raleigh's own colony of Roanoke found out when they disappeared, never to be seen again. But Raleigh again petitions Queen Elizabeth, his monarch, and if the rumours were true, his lover, and asks for permission to sail for the area known as Guiana, to look for something better than any paltry colony. You see, he's heard tell from the Spanish that there exists a hidden city, deep within the jungles up the Orinoco River, a city made entirely of gold. Perhaps the Queen scoffs. Everyone in England knows of Dick Whittington's chagrin at finding out that London's streets were in fact made of mere brick. But the Spaniards say that the King is so rich he literally bathes in gold, an entire empire waiting to be plundered. So she agrees and he sets sail. The Spanish follow him. It's almost like something out of a film a race up the river to find the lost city of gold. He makes decent headway too, exploring the Orinoco River. One small but horrific incident aside, when a crewman swimming in the river was eaten alive by a crocodile in front of everyone else, they ended up battling the Spanish and winning, taking their supplies, and heading further into the jungle. They happened upon an Amerindian tribe that told them of a wealthy neighbour, which of course Raleigh then convinced himself was an offshoot of the Peruvian Inca, and clearly the object of his desires. But after making it nearly 400 kilometres inland, there was no sign of the city of his dreams. Upon his return, he was met with a rather muted response from the Elizabethan peanut gallery. Perpetual court favourite Robert Cecil accused him of having wasted the Crown's money, and some even speculated that Raleigh had found the lost city and was hoarding the gold for himself. Raleigh would try again in 1617, but after some bungled diplomacy led to one of his commanders violating orders not to fight with the Spanish, he was executed for this upon his return to England in 1618. On that expedition, Raleigh lost his son, killed fighting the spanish he lost his best friend who killed himself after picking the fight with the spanish that saw raleigh's son die and as a result of this tragedy he lost his own life so much lost for such little gain i'm not here to mourn walter raleigh the man inadvertently created big tobacco but it does show how much people were willing to risk to find the lost city of gold but for all that sacrifice was it even real Today on Demystified, we look into the fact and the fiction behind El Dorado, the lost city of gold. We're going to start today with some etymology. That's fun, huh? El Dorado literally translates from the Spanish as the gold or the golden one. It originally referred to as an individual, the king of the Muisca people of what is today Colombia. The lengthy version of this was El Rey Dorado or El Hombre Dorado, the golden king or the golden man, respectively. But as per usual, we'll need to wind the clocks all the way backwards. I'm not going to do an overview of every lost city in history, but I will say that by the late Middle Ages and the early Renaissance, the trope was somewhat established. Contemporaneous myths included things like the stories of Prester John, a Christian king who lived far to the east of Europe. This was probably inspired by the Ethiopian Christian kingdoms of Africa, But it was rather interestingly identified with Genghis Khan when in the 1220s his Mongol army obliterated the Khurizmian Empire after having conquered Persia and most of the lands east of that. Returning 5th Crusaders celebrated that whilst they had been defeated, this King David was bringing God's wrath down on their enemies. Genghis Khan, for his part, worshipped Tengri, a god of the sky. But suffice to say, the idea of cities, kingdoms, and empires that were lost, which is to say, believed to exist but waiting to be discovered and explored, was something the people at the time understood. So by the time that Columbus discovered America in 1492, cough-cough, genocide, cough-cough, Leif Erikson got there first – Anyways, when the new world was opened up and people were found to be living there, initially Europeans were intrigued, but not too shocked by what they saw. The peoples of the Caribbean were simple and inferior. But when they landed in Mexico and saw the vast and incredibly complex cities of the Maya and the Aztec, and travelled south to find the mountain roads and cities of the Inca, they saw infrastructure and urban construction projects that put to shame anything that they were doing in Europe. It was all well and good building a cathedral on flat ground, but to build a palace in the clouds with a road network so advanced that the Sapa Inca of the inland city of Cusco could have fresh fish caught that very morning for dinner? They were simply awestruck. Seriously, the Incan Royal Road was 40,000 kilometres long. It stretched from Ecuador to Chile and incorporates suspension bridges between chasms over mountain passes. It really is an astonishing feat of engineering, all done without a written language or even the wheel. Some tried to rationalise this, which is how we ended up with those bonkers Atlantis myths from our last episode. Racists, whether they're products of their times or plain old bigots, have a hard time accounting for how, shock horror, humans are humans and can be good at stuff no matter what they look like. Others just threw rationality to the wind and began exploiting the lack of disease resistance and the technological advances they were bringing to bear. Because these people had something they wanted, aside from land and natural resources. Gold. I say gold, really precious metals, gold, silver, of which the latter seems to have been the more abundant in the case of the places the Spanish set up shop, as well as gems and other rare resources like the nascent but growing demand for tobacco and sugar cane. Platinum was also fairly abundant, as abundant as ever it is, but its value wasn't really recognised back then. In fact, the Spanish called it unripe gold and silver and chucked it away. But now, as for where the Spanish set up shop, the story basically goes like this. Between 1494 and 1529, the Spanish and Portuguese, with the blessings of the Pope, drew several lines on the globe and divided the world into two hemispheres. Portugal gets the East, Spain gets the West. Portugal got Brazil because the line was drawn down South America. So you see Portuguese colonies in Brazil, but also in places like Macau in China and Goa in India, mostly in the East. The Spanish get everything else and begin acting as though they had done, which is a trend that would continue into the future as well. When the Americans seized Texas... In the American-Mexican War, the Mexican-American War, they weren't just taking that state, they took everything to the West, which Mexico had inherited from Spain. However, the Pope's pronunciations of Iberian hegemony over the whole world only really applied if you were Catholic. Protestant nations like England and Denmark and Sweden, which at the time were in the Kalmar Union together, didn't care what the Pope had to say. And to be fair, neither did a lot of the other Catholics. It was one of those kinds of things where, if the Pope was on your side, his word was infallible, but if he wasn't, then he was just a puppet of your enemy. So, France, England, Spain, Portugal, and eventually the United Provinces of the Netherlands set out to the Americas with varying levels of success. England, whilst it would eventually come to dominate North America, initially had a run of bad luck. Raleigh's Roanoke colony disappeared, as we discussed in our episode on that, And frequent skirmishes with the American Indians and starvation and disease made this whole colonising thing look like a bit of a waste of time. Funny how these things turn out. Spain was doing better. Better in terms of being good at colonising, which generally means making things worse for the people underneath you. But in this rare instance, it was actually worse for everyone. You see, the Spanish, in their conquest of the Aztecs and the Incan Empires in 1519-1572, to 1572, had found lots of that wonderful gold and silver and were mining it all for free because they had enslaved the native populaces of both places and instituted strict race-based social hierarchies that systematically destroyed the local culture, language, and religion. Grim, but important to recognize it. But whilst the Spanish were busy making life miserable for the peoples of the Americas, they ended up making their own lives miserable too. They flooded the European market with their treasure fleets at a time when the economy was in a system that today we call mercantilism. The basic summary of which could be boiled down to accumulate money by importing less and exporting more. When you start massively importing loads of precious metal into your country, which is the basis of the value of your economy, you flooded the market and your currency is worthless. For countries, too much money can be as bad as too little. So although it would have been a cold comfort to the Amerindians who died of mercury poisoning from processing the silver, or crushed in cave or beaten to death by the Spanish, it was an instance of historical karmic justice. But while Spain is languishing from having the fruits of its victory tumbling into its mouth too quickly, the rest of Europe is ready for the new opportunities being presented. Some, like Francis Drake, the English explorer who was the second captain to circumnavigate the globe and the first to survive his voyage, took to piracy and privateering, stealing Spanish gold and silver. For others, though, there was an easier option. Why fight the Spanish to take their gold when you could just pluck the wealth from right in front of you, deep within the jungles? The colonisation of the New World was also an event that needs to be thought of from the native perspective as well. Lest we forget, after all, in the stories of El Dorado, they're supposedly the ones living in the cities of gold. I think it has something to do with expectations between the interpretations and the relationships between the natives and the Europeans. The discovery of a very advanced civilization of the Aztec, Maya or Inca proved to Europeans that this new world wasn't just people with savages, but had distinct and unique cultures. Now, of course, that level of nuance wouldn't have been present in most accounts. Instead, the interpretation was here lay an undiscovered country which could contain just about anything. Remember the Prester John story from earlier? How when the Crusaders heard of a great king in the east defeating the Muslim empires, they tried to fit in their desire for that to be true, when the reality was it was not a Christian, it was a Tengriist warlord who was massacring his way from China to Georgia, and if given the chance, would have ploughed straight through them as well. So now we come to the story of El Dorado. And here we end up telling the story, we find the actual inspiration for El Hombre de Dorado. On the shores of Lake Guaravira, near present-day Bogotá, in Colombia, there lived a culture called the Muisca. The Muisca had a rather interesting ceremony for inducting new kings, more specifically an office of political and religious authority called the Zipa. They would cover themselves in gold dust, adorn themselves with golden jewellery, and then dive into the lake and wash it all off, throwing the jewels and the gold to the bottom as an offering for their patron goddess. The Spanish heard tell of this myth from neighbouring tribes, and the legend of El Hombre de Dorado, the golden man, was born. So the Spanish investigate and they find that it's true. The Muisca do exist and so does the Tzipa and they really do bathe in gold. In one specific ceremony with a distinct cultural context. And here we see one of the rather interesting things about the New World Gold trade. Gold is only really valuable because we say it is. Outside of computer circuitry, it's heavy, a poor conductor, and soft and basically useless for everything. But it is shiny and it is corrosion resistant, which makes it good for jewellery and sculptures. That's what the Amerindians do with their massive supply of it, but it's not rare and their economies are barter-based rather than currency-based, so this thing that is not useful to people is not valuable. Of course, they do recognise it has some value, hence its use in the ceremony, but not so much that they wouldn't be willing to throw it away but the Spanish see this through their cultural lens of gold equals valuable and assume, incorrectly, that they must have so much that they're just throwing it away. Of course, this did happen both ways to some extent throughout the age of imperialism. Oftentimes the European would trade with the native group in whatever place they were exploring and give them complex technology and manufactured goods that would be inaccessible to the natives but commonplace to them in exchange for resources that were commonplace to the natives but rare for them. Both parties walk away thinking that they'd done daylight robbery. The Spanish conquered and enslaved the Muisca in the 1530s and the 1540s, but the legend grew and grew. They had found El Hombre de Dorado, but a bunch of gold they couldn't get at the bottom of a lake merely sparked the idea that there must be more. Once again, I'll credit the YouTube channel Overly Sarcastic Productions for this point of analysis. A big part of why the legend grew in an almost self-perpetuating way was that it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, the Spanish or the English or whoever would find some great trove of gold and silver, only to declare that it was insufficient to be the real El Dorado. But the existence of the smaller trove implied to them the existence of a bigger one. El Dorado was about a city entirely made of gold. People decked out in it so much you can throw it away. So any real-life city with lots of gold won't be enough to confirm the myth, but in a strange way it also does. Throughout the 1500s and 1600s, waves of explorers would search high and low for El Dorado. Some would go to the deserts of what is today Arizona and New Mexico. Others, like Raleigh, plunge deep into the South American jungle. Raleigh is important to the story because he even goes so far as to add a fictitious location of the city and name for it. The city is called Manoa, and it's on the shores of Lake Parime. Lake Parime doesn't exist. But it wouldn't be until Alexander von Humboldt definitively mapped out the region in 1803 that Raleigh's map would finally be fully dismissed. But even earlier, explorers like the Frenchman Charles-Marie de la Condamine had also mapped the river basins of South America and found nothing, adding fuel to the fire of the scepticism of El Dorado. But by those times, the 1700s, interest in the myth had largely died down. After the new world treasure fleet stopped and the importance of other colonies, like those in North America and the Caribbean, increased, the search for Eldorado became less frantic. What are the gold at the bottom of Lake Guadavida? Well, several attempts were made to recover it with varying degrees of success. The most recent British attempt in 1898 failed catastrophically and by accidentally concreting the floor of the lake have now consigned the gold down there to be buried forever, effectively. So, we don't really have theories for this episode. Because, well, what's there to theorise? We know El Dorado isn't real, and I seriously don't think there's even a tiny vocal minority who would dispute that, unlike with Atlantis. The fact of the matter is that it was an invented legend, created in part by a massive game of telephone being played by the Spanish conquistadors, who were hell-bent on finding a lost city of gold to the extent that when they found entire mountains full of silver, it wasn't enough. Raleigh's expeditions helped to codify it in the Anglosphere because of how important he was in the foundations of the British Empire, before Britain had even formed properly, and modern-day America, and in part because he seemed to be so fully invested in the myth, Raleigh believed in El Dorado, and arguably gave his life trying to find it. Could part of it then also be the sunk cost fallacy, as we arguably saw with Percy Fawcett in The Lost City of Zed? When one spends one's whole life trying to formulate the idea of this amazing lost city, that it your destiny to find, and that when you do find it, it will fix all of your problems. So when you go looking for it and you don't find it, you don't accept it. Instead, it's, well, here's why I didn't find it this time, but I will find it the next time. So, is El Dorado real? No. And that's just it. Nobody today thinks that it is. But people in the 1500s really believed in the legend, because some of them seemed to be living the legend. But it's always a cautionary tale, isn't it? How many of those infamous conquistadors died being stabbed in the back by their supposed friends? Far more than ever retired peacefully with their nest egg fortune, that's for sure. It's always a dark tale of betrayal and greed played out in one of the world's more hostile environments. In fact, one expedition, the journey of the infamous Lope de Aguirre, was started because another Spaniard wanted to send him and his group of 300 away into the jungles just to get rid of them. Pedro de Osua was the one who wanted to get rid of de Aguirre, but de Aguirre ended up assisting in the killing of him in a backstab. Then de Aguirre was himself backstabbed after attempting to establish his own country. It's a trope TV tropes cause chronic backstabbing syndrome, but really it exemplifies the types of people that conquistadors were. Here were people who'd willingly travelled thousands of miles from home in the most dangerous time to do so, risking life and limb to gain everything or lose everything, and nobody was going to stand in their way. They burned through everything and everyone like fuel. Native Americans, rival explorers, their own friends and families and countries the conquistador had one goal, amassing their own fame and fortune, no matter the cost. Is it any wonder then that they became so enamored with the idea of El Dorado? Interestingly enough, it's also been suggested that some of the natives played up the legend when asked by the Spanish for several reasons. Firstly, appearing useful was a good way to curry favor, even if you were just making it up. Secondly, it was a good way to make yourself look like the small fish, by dangling the mythic prize in front of the conquistadors, you could escape yourself. Thirdly, it was just a great way to get rid of them, and as de Ursa were intended, send them scrambling off into the untamed wilderness looking for something that's not there, probably never to be seen again. But it was the Native Americans who suffered so at the hands of the greedy conquistadors of all stripes, who could never be satisfied despite having so much wealth they crashed their own economy, The Spanish kept pumping that gold and silver out like hotcakes, and the English and French and the others looked at this obvious morality tale and said, yeah, I'll have what they're having. And on what suffering was that wealth built? How many died? Certainly in the millions, if we're being conservative, killed by disease, or worked to death as slaves to feed the ambitions of the new empires. But it brings us back to the myth of El Dorado on lessons we might learn. Well, you could say something along the lines of not being too avaricious, a basic, obvious lesson, but perhaps it wasn't so obvious to the conquistadors. They'd already struck oil, as it were, and they kept digging. If anything, the Spanish economic woes are the perfect parallel to the story of El Dorado. Even when they'd found what they needed and had had their fill, it wasn't enough and they kept going and going, even when it brought them to ruin. I should point out for the sake of historical accuracy that the Spanish economic collapse called the Price Revolution, if you'd like to do some independent reading on it, had lots of factors, including European urbanisation, potential currency debasement, and population growth. But historians generally agree that the incalculable influx of gold and silver into the Spanish market was the main factor. El Dorado was a bit like Atlantis in that way. Both are totally made-up legends that people believed were or are real. The motivations for both are different. But there is some overlap. For Atlantis, it was all about people trying to prove some vague historical point by securing the existence of Atlantis as real. But nope. Plato made it up, regardless of real-world inspirations. El Dorado also had real-world inspirations. But unlike with Atlantis, where people would take those real-world inspirations and latch onto them, the conquistadors instead ignored them as being close but no cigar. But now I think it's time we close the book. For now at least, on the story of El Dorado, the lost city of gold. This episode of Demystify was written, recorded, and edited by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios and music from productiongrade.com. Go to productioncreate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Follow us on Twitter at Demystified underscore and support us from as little as one pound a month on Patreon. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.